What's up, everybody? How are you guys doing? Happy Easter. Happy Resurrection Day. I am so excited to see all of y'all here today. Um, I've said it before, Easter is one of my favorite holidays, and I really feel like it should, it, it doesn't get enough credit. It should be up there with Christmas for everybody, all of the emotions and the feelings that we feel about uh, Christmas when you talk to most people, is I think we should be feeling about Easter. It's one of the most important, it is the most important event that happened in the history of the world. So, in light of that, I want to do a good job today. So, would you pray with me before we get started? Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you so much for what this day represents and the resurrection that we are celebrating today. I ask, Lord, that you would just help me to, to be clear and concise with whatever you would have me to share today. I ask that your spirit would speak to each person in this room, help them to hear your voice, Lord, and uh, just speak to us and help us to become the people that you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. So I have a fun picture to start out with to show you guys. Um, this, is, uh, this is a picture of 17-year-old Nick. This is me like 40 pounds thinner and no beard. And I actually had hair back then. Obviously I'm on the left. My buddy Jeff is on the right. <laughs> this, uh, this picture, interestingly enough, was taken when I was on a trip uh, to Haiti. It was, this was right after the big earthquake they had, I guess, was it 17, over 10, uh, 15 years ago? I don't know how long ago it was. Um, and uh, me and some people from my church went down uh, to help at a orphanage there. We actually got a picture afterwards. Again, remember, 40 pounds thinner, much more hair, no beard. This was a, a very different Nick. This is me hanging out with some of the kids um, from that orphanage. Um, and I have so many stories from this experience. I grew up in a family of missionaries, uh, and I traveled all over the world, but Haiti was a very, very different place than any of the other countries that I had ever visited before. And it really impacted me. It really shaped a lot of the way that I view the world, a lot of the way that I view the gospel specifically. And I have to be honest in just saying that Haiti was probably one of the most heartbreaking places I've ever been. Um, Reagan, I know you've been there too, and I, I, we talked after she came back, and she told me just the, there's the amount of poverty you see there, the amount of um, just disease and, and just brokenness that is present there is just kind of to another a next level. It's, it's hard um, to, to really grasp, and it really changed a lot of things for me, and especially in light of how I view God. And there was one moment in particular I remember that was the hardest moment the whole time I was in Haiti. Um, we had uh, been helping out at this orphanage, but this one day they told us we were going to go uh, up into the mountains, up into the mountains above the city where we were at, and we were going to get to go to a prison and do some prison ministry there. And uh, the, the, the amount of road laws that don't apply in Haiti was just like, it blew my mind. Um, and so all this whole group of us missionaries, that short-term missionaries that were there, they just threw all of us in the back of a pickup truck. We literally were just like standing, you know, like no room to sit, like standing in the back of a pickup truck, holding on for dear life as we are snaking through these crazy roads up into the mountains, going to this prison to do some prison ministry. And as we're going in and as we're hanging on for dear life, trying not to fall off and die in Haiti, the missionary who lives there permanently, who is kind of organizing the whole trip, he is uh, kind of prepping us for what we're about to experience. And he said, many of you maybe have done prison ministry in the States. 
this is not the same thing. This is very, very different. He said, um, get ready to go and to see uh, very small cells. It's hard for me to describe exactly the size of them, but this front half of the room, this half with the taller ceiling, imagine this front half of the room is split into like three rooms. And now imagine there's about 40 people in each of those rooms, just, you know, stuffed together, basically standing room only. They don't have bathrooms. They have a corner that they designate as the bathroom corner. They take turns every once in a while. They let the uh, inmates out into the courtyard so they can hose everything down, and then they just put everybody back in this room. And you just sleep on the concrete, right on top of each other, standing room only, in the middle of your bathroom, basically. And if that wasn't hard enough, if that wasn't impossible to imagine what a prison would be like that way, the next thing that the missionary followed up by telling us is that most of these people do not deserve to be there. He said one of the biggest issues in the country of Haiti is just corruption, government corruption, corruption at the very top. He said every year Haiti receives enough money from the United States government to fix all of their problems, just from government, from nonprofit agencies, from anything. They get millions of dollars of charity money that comes into the country every year but it never makes it to any of the causes that it's supposed to do. It just stays, lines the pockets of these corrupt government officials. And these corrupt government officials end up making a lot of enemies throughout their time. And where do they put enemies? In prison. They told us the story of another American missionary who had had the misfortune of crashing his vehicle into a police officer's car just by accident and ended up in prison for like a year because he just accidentally ran into this police officer's car and ran afoul of the wrong person with the wrong power. And I just, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what I was going to say. Because see, here's, here's the problem. I was like 17 and I had, at this point, I knew I was going to go into ministry. I knew that's what I wanted to do. My youth minister was the one who organized the whole trip. And so he thought, prison ministry, great opportunity. Nick, you get to preach. <laughs> and it was, it was my, like my second time ever standing in front of people preaching. And I had to go and I had to preach to these inmates stuffed into a small room, many of them not deserving to be there. I was like, what do I say? Like, what in the world do I say to somebody like that? What do I say? How am I going to preach to them? How am I going to share anything to them when their world has been so unbelievably unfair? And I was just freaking out. I didn't know what I was going to say the entire trip. I didn't know what I was going to say. And I did something that I, I actually don't recommend. You, honestly, 90% of the time I'd say this is the wrong thing to do. Uh, take it as pastoral advice. Don't usually do this. But this is one of those times when I just didn't know what else to do, and it actually worked out really well for me. And as we're sitting in the courtyard of this prison about to go in, and I have to have this opportunity to preach to these inmates in this prison, I just opened my Bible, and I was like, I'm just going to preach on whatever the first passage that I find. <laughs> That's one gone very wrong for me a few times. So again, I'm not saying do that always. But this is the verse that came up this time. It's Romans 8, verses 18 through 25. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. 
We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until this present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And as soon as this verse, I read this verse, it just kind of hit me, the, the, the direction I was going to take as I was going to talk to these inmates. And it's kind of the direction I want to take with us today. So it's, it's Easter Sunday, and this is usually the Sunday when a preacher's supposed to tell you all about the gospel. And if you haven't been saved yet, maybe this is your opportunity to come to be saved and to find forgiveness of your sins. And I know most of you, and my suspicion is most of us in this room are already believers. We've already made that decision. We've had our own personal sins forgiven. But I'm, I would venture to say that one of the things that is still bothering many of you is not your sins, not my personal sins, not the ways I know that I fail God. We just finished the season of Lent where we focused on that. And we know all of us still have a long way to go in that area. But I think what tends to frustrate us and just get under our skin is these things that are outside of our control. The world around us seems so broken and just and, and so full of sin. It's not our personal sin that bothers us, but it is the, the, the sort of capital S sin that exists in the world. And so that's what I preached to these inmates. I sat there and I told them, listen, creation itself is broken and it, it eagerly desires to have everything fixed. Everything around you, not just your life, but everything you see around you, the world that we are surrounded by is broken. They know that more than almost any of us do. They, in that prison, in that unfair imprisonment, they know exactly how broken the world is. But even though many of us have not experienced the same level of suffering, I would venture to say that many of you know just how broken the world is. You see the greed of people around you, and you are, you're upset at the, at the greed and selfishness and materialism of the people around you. You see brokenness in uh, your families and people that you used to trust in uh, churches, unfortunately, and you see the sin and brokenness that is present in those places. And the list could go on and on of all of the things that you, I, I, I imagine, as soon as I said it, you could just think of things. What's the thing that just like grinds your gears, that gets you the most upset, the thing that gets you uh, just livid every time you think about it, the brokenness that you see in the world. And I think one of the things that's been most encouraging to me about Christianity is that it doesn't gloss over that. The Bible, in that passage, it clearly says creation knows that it's broken and it's groaning, it's desiring to be redeemed. And this is the thing that I have started to notice over and over again, specifically in what Jesus did in the crucifixion, the way that he redeemed the brokenness of the world. Like, we, like I said, we like to focus on the way Jesus uh, atoned for our sins personally, but there's a lot of details about the crucifixion that I think many of us don't notice that, that connected all the way to, to bringing back the, 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 the brokenness of the world. One of the first curses that comes up in Adam and Eve's story when the world gets to that broken state, when the world is first broken, uh, there's this curse that it says to Adam, he said, God said, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. 
Through painful toil, you'll eat fruit from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. One of the very first curses is this, the, the thorns and thistles, the difficulty of working the land. And it wasn't until, honestly, last year it hit me that that is the reason that Jesus is crowned with a crown of thorns. Jesus is crowned with a crown of thorns because he is taking, he is literally taking that curse that is on the creation and placing it upon himself. uh, Paul keys into this really closely in Galatians where he says, Christ redeemed us from uh, the curse of the law, he talks about specifically, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole And if you're familiar with the old King James version of this, it says, cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. There were these curses in the Old Testament about people for people who would not follow the law. These, these curses that would come upon them and these, these sort of cursed things, especially people who were to be hanged, hung on trees. And I think one of the things that we really miss often about the crucifixion is yes, Jesus is taking your personal sin upon himself, but he is also taking everything that's cursed and broken in the world, everything that has ever bothered you. And he, he also takes all of that upon himself. I've talked to a lot of people recently who are super upset politically on either side of uh, the spectrum, super upset about everything politically, super upset at the government, super upset at government leaders. And this is one of those details that I also missed till recently about the crucifixion. It is ultra important that the Roman government is a part of that whole process. Because in a way, Jesus is in a part of one of the most corrupt trials ever. We know he is innocent, and yet he is condemned by a corrupt government. He takes upon all that curse and brokenness of the government on himself. I've talked to so many people who have families maybe that are, are falling apart. You have uh, maybe your parents, maybe your children, maybe uh, extended family members that you know, where you just are seeing these divisions, these fights, these brokenness in your families. And this is one of the other things I never noticed about the crucifixion. It's Jesus, his own family, that is a part of this crucifixion moment. The, you know, it, the, 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 key lots of times that I think gets missed about the Jewish people being the ones that are shouting crucify him is it's not just that these are those Jews and over here is the Christians. No, Jesus is a Jew. It is his friends. It is his family. I, 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 am, I imagine that it is many of his, his own extended family members that are a part of that same crowd shouting crucify him. All those broken, all that brokenness, all those curses, all of that stuff, he he takes upon himself. And the thing he does when he takes all of that brokenness, all of that stuff that just really gets under your skin on to himself, the thing that happens in that moment is that Jesus creates a way for us to become members of the family of God. The next verse in Romans that I really want to focus on is this one. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. If you jump uh, just kind of a few verses back, I think we've got it up there, Dante. Don't we have another Romans verse? Yes, no, maybe? No other Romans verse? (laughs) My bad. (laughs) Here, I'll read it for you guys. 
Um, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. This is another one of those details you guys are going to get tired of hearing me say, but I think it's so important that for the early Christians, what they viewed themselves at is not just as members of the church, but as family members specifically. They knew that they were all adopted into the same family. We are all adopted brothers and sisters, and they actually started calling themselves that. They started using the term brother and sister to refer to each other. When archaeologists have done study of all of ancient religions before Christianity, even in ancient Judaism, you, re- you rarely ever see people refer to each other as brothers and sisters until the movement of Jesus, until the way of Jesus. That is the moment when we all become members of the same family. And this is, I think, the key to really kind of, you know, there's the one side of us that could just be like, yeah, that's great. Jesus took all those curses, all that brokenness on top of himself. Um, so what hope is there? You know, he just took all, the, all those curses on top of himself. And what, we just hold on and wait until he wipes all of this away, and then it kind of comes forward. But notice in Romans, what he is specifically saying that we are waiting for is, he says, creation is waiting for, for the sons of God, those of us, again, the brothers and sisters, the sons of God, those who have been adopted as sons of God, to be revealed. We are the ones who can really make a difference in pushing back some of that brokenness that we see in the world. And I know what can kind of happen when I say that, you know, a lot of us, we say we want to push back that brokenness and we're a family that's supposed to do this amazing thing of of reclaiming uh, what God has done in the world. And I, I can imagine that many of us have been jaded at hearing that. Maybe we've lost hope as to whether there's any hope in the church, in us as the church. Is there really any hope for us to actually make any difference in this brokenness. I, I recently uh, watched the movie Encanto. Um, I really love that movie. I loved it immediately as soon as I saw it. it. It was one of my favorite movies. And I remember I loved it the second I saw it. And then it was like the next week later, I think I was talking to Joey and Joey was like, eh. <laughs> and, uh, and then I was talking to jo- uh, Noah and same thing. He was like, eh. It was fine. I don't know. I, it wasn't my favorite. Don't go attack them. They are allowed to have their opinions. I'm not. I'm not trying to like sick everybody else on them. If you guys love Encanto, uh, I'm, I'm telling you, they have permission not to love it. But specifically Noah, just because me and him spent all week together working, doing things in the office and stuff like that, I was just like, no, this isn't allowed. I'm going to convince him as to why I love Encanto specifically. <laughs> and we sat. We talked for a long time, and I was telling him about all the reasons I love Encanto. But there's one scene in particular that really um, like made me love the movie. And it's a sad scene, actually. I think we were playing it earlier, and Mikey was just like, that's like one of the saddest parts of the movie. But I'll play it for you here real quick. So just to set the scene a little bit, if you haven't seen the movie. There's this brother, Bruno. 
you may have heard, we don't talk about Bruno. It's the most famous song out of that. The brother that they don't talk about. And they think he's just disappeared. Mirabelle, the main character, she uh, discovers that Bruno has not disappeared. He's actually been living inside the house the whole time, living behind the walls of their house. And there's this moving moment where she looks through that hole and she sees the dining room where the family sits and eats. And right on the other side of that wall, Bruno has drawn himself a little place so that he can sit and eat with the family. And it's, it's just this crazy moving moment because of that line he says. He says, I know that uh, my gift was making it difficult for the family, but I love my family. So he didn't want to leave. He loved his family so much that even though they were, they were attacking him, they thought he was the enemy. They thought he was the person that was wrong. He still loved them so much that he, he wanted to stay. He wanted to be near them. He wanted to be around them. And I really connected with that because that is how I have felt about the church my entire life. There are so many times where the church has hurt me specifically. Members of the church have said things, some of the most hurtful things to me. Some of the most hurtful things anybody has said has been from other family members, members of the church. And I have so many friends who have been in the same boat as well. And unfortunately, a lot of them, their solution is, I'm just going to leave. I'm just going to go. I'm going to go somewhere else. I'm going to get away from the people that are hurting me. But the, the attitude that Bruno has where he's just like, no, I'm, I love my family. I still want to be around. I still want to be near them in, in, in whatever way that I can be. That is the attitude that I think a true person who really understands that you are a part of the family of God. We have all been adopted as sons of God. You don't throw that away. You are still a member of the family. And I thought that was just such an amazing example of the grace that he shows his own family by, by sticking around and by desiring to be with them. I think that's one of the, the biggest challenges that I, I would have uh, for many of you. When these situations come up where you get hurt by other family members, I would encourage you to, to keep that family perspective in mind Keep the, the, the joy of eating around the table. That's the thing that really kept Bruno thinking about his family, the joy of eating together. He let that be the thing that drove him to stay with his family, despite all of the difficulties. And I really think that when we, as, as the, the family of God, unify together, join together, work together to push back the brokenness of the world, that's when we can really, truly start to see differences in the world. It's been amazing as I've talked um, to different missionaries and people that I know in other parts of the world and seen the amazing things that so much of the church is doing in so many different parts of the world. Um, with the, the war and everything going on in Ukraine, I got to talk to some friends of mine who are uh, missionaries over there who decided to stay in the middle of the war so that they could bring food to the people in need, bring food to the people who uh, were either fighting on the front lines or some of the people who were stranded behind enemy lines. And they were putting their life at risk literally to go out there and to provide for the people who needed it. That is an example of the sons of God pushing back the brokenness in the world. And that's the thing that motivates me. Imagine a world where we were all truly doing that, all really making those differences. But I'll end with this, because I imagine that's 
It's encouraging. You can think of some things. But I, I, there's, there's probably some of you that are still skeptical. You know, it's just like, well, I don't know. What are we really going to do? Everything seems pretty messed up. Is there really any hope? What could we possibly do to fix some of these situations? And this last point actually just came to me that today at lunch. I was sitting with my family at dinner. I was talking to my brother. My brother, has been, my brother Jeremy has been a, a member at another church in town called Avenue Community Church. And he was, we're preacher family. So what we do at dinner is we tell everybody, what are the sermon points that you heard this morning in church? And we just like talk about the sermon and, you know, critique things and everything like that. So Jeremy's given us the outline of what the sermon he heard that morning from his pastor, Tim. And uh, Tim said this one thing that I had never heard before. He was preaching on the story of Lazarus. Many of you know where, where Jesus raises this man, Lazarus, from the dead. And there's this famous verse in it where it says, Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. A lot of people are like, I can memorize that one. Jesus wept. It's two words. I know that verse. It's a famous verse where Jesus weeps over Lazarus, over his friend who has died. But there's this line that Pastor Tim focused on right after, uh, right after Jesus weeps. And this is what the people say. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? And Jesus once more, notice this phrase here, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, uh, by this time there is a bad odor that has been there for days. I also didn't put the whole verse in here. Sorry, guys. <laughs> and... Um, so Jesus once more deeply moved came to the tomb it was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance take away the stone he said but Lord said Martha the sister of the dead man by this time there's a bad odor for he has been there four days Martha is just like I Come on, he's been decaying for a while. There's no way that you can do this. She's skeptical. She can't believe that Jesus could actually do what he's going to say. And then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Which is one of the most BA things ever. Jesus is just like, I'm not even asking. I'm just thanking you ahead of time that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, despite the skepticism of Martha and the people. You know, the people are like, this is the guy that's like healing people and making the blind see. Surely he could have kept this man from dying. And there's this line that was so interesting to me. Jesus, deeply moved. The original Greek word for that, deeply moved, it's a fun one to say. Metamoia. Say that with me. Metamoia. <laughs> it was a it was it was a it was a really weird and particularly fun interesting word that I actually don't like that translation because it doesn't really get the tone across. If you look at any other time that word gets used, it actually means um, 
irritated or indignant. That's usually how it gets used. It, it's a deep emotion, deeply moved, a deep emotion, but an emotion you feel when you are just irritated <laughs> with people. <laughs> that is the context of what is going on here. Jesus is so irritated with the lack of faith that these people have. He is, he is deeply moved by just the, the, the questioning nature of what they have. So he turns to God and he says, thank you that you hear me. I know that you always hear me, but I'm saying this for these stubborn people here. <laughs> and then he raises the man from the dead. And ultimately, I think that is the message of Easter. The resurrection of Jesus proves to us that there is absolutely nothing that is impossible for God whether it's corrupt governments, whether it is broken families, whether it's greed of people around you, whether it is your own personal sin, whether it is anything that irritates you, that bothers you, anything that seems hopeless. There was no more hopeless day for the followers of Jesus than the, than the crucifixion. It's over, they thought. He's the Messiah. We, we had our hope in him, but it didn't work out. And then the resurrection of Jesus proves that there's nothing beyond God's power to fix. And there's actually a verse that says that the same power that raised Jesus from the grave is what is available to you and me today. The power that raised Jesus from the grave, the power of the resurrection is what is available for us. And I really believe that. I really believe that we can actually make a difference in pushing back the brokenness in the world. But I can't do it alone. It's a family effort. We got to do it together. We got to do it through the power of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for what your resurrection represents. The fact that you have proven to us that there is absolutely nothing that is beyond your ability to fix. And I ask, Lord, that you would just help us to believe that. I believe that, Lord, but help my unbelief, help the unbelief of my friends and family here with me. I ask, Lord, that you would help us to, to catch visions and dreams of the good that we could do in the world, the good that you have in store for us, the good things that you want us to, to do for those around us. I ask that you would allow those visions to, to, to motivate us and to spur us on to do those good deeds and that you would uh, give us the power to make those things happen and to bring the glory back to you.